Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey everyone, this week on Around the Coin, we have Dan Rosen on the show. Dan is a longtime investor and founding partner in Commerce VC. Commerce VC is a venture fund with a focus on payment technology companies. Uh, we talked to Dan uh, today about a lot of different topics ranging from Apple Pay to Bitcoin to on-demand economy. Uh, really a fantastic show and hope you enjoy. All right, today is an exciting episode. We have Dan Rosen on the show. He is the founder, creative partner in Commerce VC with a focus on investing in payment startups. Um, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, we're welcome, Dan. Brian and I, Faisal's out today, but Brian and I are very excited to have you on. Uh, Dan and I first met uh, in San Francisco a few years ago when I was working on FlowTab. And Dan, I was just impressed with your. Just your your willingness to sit and listen to us at the time we had practically nothing, and you know I think you just gave us a lot of inspiration, if nothing else, to just keep trucking away and working on it. Um, so as as the years go on, I could see you made a lot of great picks and, and really interesting companies. Um, wh- how did you start Commerce VC, or what came before this? What kind of led yeah. you to you know this this tale? Yeah, no. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's great, great to participate, and uh, it's uh, it's it's been fun getting to know you over the years. I wish I, there's been a there's been a little bit of a hiatus between this this and the last time we've chatted. So I'm glad we're reconnecting. Um, so the you know the backstory for me is I've been in venture for about 15 years, and uh, I think so officially I think that's all I'm really qualified to do. Um, and and uh, I you know I started Commerce Ventures about two years ago, but before that I was at a firm called Highland Capital, um, which is I think where I was when we first met. And um, at Highland, I you know I sort of started off uh, my time uh, back in 2006, um, right out of grad school, uh, hired in to focus on investments in the mobile space. And the uh, you know back in 2006, and I'm not sure how much you guys remember, um, the mobile space really was you know it was it was sort of pre-mobile data. I mean, mobile data oh, yeah. back then was SMS um, and some pretty crappy mobile web. Um, so, so, so back then, I was really focused on infrastructure. So I started um, by making investments in you know, towers and spectrum and semiconductor companies and, and equipment companies. And you know, candidly, we, we did very well in those spaces. Um, but in 2007, and, and we were looking at mobile applications um, and across a bunch of different areas, like 
mobile couponing and loyalty and even mobile banking. And I spent time way, way back then with, you know, the Claire Mills and Firethorns and, uh, oh, <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, this ancient history now. M foundry and, 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 you know, there, there were some successes out of, out of that era of, of companies, but, um, but it was too early for the sort of mobile payment stuff back then. Cause it's still relatively early now. Um, so, so we didn't make any investments in mobile payments, but it got me, um, you know, to take a really deep dive in the, in the payment space, um, to understand the trends and, and exciting opportunities there. And, and back in, and that was, that was called late 06 to early 2007. And back then, there really, you know, other than a couple of VCs like Matt Harris, there just weren't early stage investors who were who were making investments, you know, in the in the in the payments and fintech space in, in any meaningful way. So I, I started to build a a payments and fintech practice at, at Highland. It was sort of my minor, if you will, um, back then. Um, and over the years, I spent an increasing amount of time there. Um, I I was in the Boston office for four and a half years. Moved to the West Coast. Um, you know, kind of in, in late 2010, um, and uh, and I, you know, inevitably caught the entrepreneur bug out here in San Francisco pretty quickly, and um, decided I kind of wanted to focus more on this this payments and fintech opportunity um, than I was able to dedicate um, uh, just as a generalist at Highland. So um, I, I ended up leaving to start Commerce Ventures around you know a pretty specific thesis that. Um, you know, payments are, you know, are fundamentally important at the core of, of, you know, kind of commerce and, and, and retail transactions. Um, but that there, there's also a lot of value added, um, around the payment, um, you know, both, both for brands and, and for and retailers, but also, you know, for FinTech players. Um, and so our focus as a firm is really to invest in, in companies that are enabling, um, you know, kind of the, those uh, those transactions to happen um, and value to be added around them, and um, and our investors. It, what's a little bit unique about us is you know we're we're a non lead VC investor, uh, although we typically do invest at relatively early stages, um, seed, Series A, sometimes a little bit later. But um, we're, but we're a non lead investor because we're a relatively small you know, neighborhood of twenty million dollars first time fund. Um, but all of our investors are strategic, so it includes you know three large corporates, all from the, the fintech space, um, and uh, and about thirty six strategic individuals, including former president of PayPal, the, the former CEO and founder of Checkfree, uh, the former CEO of CyberSource, um, the former CEO of Lytle and Co, uh, Anil Agarwal from Money Twenty Twenty and TXVIA. So we've been we've been very fortunate to get to work with some of the um, you know what we perceive to be some of the most you know interesting and knowledgeable folks in in the payments and, and commerce ecosystem. So anyway, that's a little bit of background. And, now, yeah. Now, Dan, uh, you, you talk about the constellation of uh, companies around uh, fintech and payments. Um, how far do you reach out? I mean, retail tech. In my view, retail tech and payment tech are uh, really one and the same. They've been separated, obviously, but ultimately, you know, they converge because the data is so meaningful on the payment side and the retail side with the convergence in this, that are taking place. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I, the way I've, I've I, when I went out to, to pitch the fund, the fund one um, concept to people, I, I went through a lot of slides that, that kind of almost walked through um, a logical step uh, by step, you know, look at the the sort of digital funnel to physical retail. Um, 
you know, today we've made many investments across both, you know, kind of technology enable enablers um, in, in digital retail as well as in, in physical retail. But one of the core early themes for us was really this online to offline, you know, kind of theme, which is, you know, how do you, um, you know, how do you embrace sort of digital demand generation or marketing um, and attribute, you know, kind of that marketing to physical, you know, commerce um, that occurs thereafter, which is one of these, you know, kind of really challenging things to do. But um, if you look at, you know, sort of the retail, um, you know, the, the percentage of retail spend online versus offline, it's, you know, still obviously dominated by, by offline spend. Um, so, so that was a core theme for us was really this online to offline theme. And, you know, and, and how do you create an, you know, kind of an attribution infrastructure um, for digital marketing um, that, you know, kind of is tied to transactions that occur. Um, so for obvious reasons, you know, payments is, is, is pretty important to that. Um, but also is mobile and, and, and a lot of other t- types of technologies, including in-store technologies. So um, fun- fundamentally, do you view uh, payments as really just a form of digital information as retail data is? Or do you see it as even deeper than that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think the, the, short, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, you know, the, the addendum to that is, of course, that, in, you know, payments and, and, you know, banking and, you know, in general, um, and financial services in general are, are regulated industries. So there's, sure. there, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, it, even though it's, you know, at the core, intellectually, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to think about a payment, you know, as a information, as, as, as information flow. Um, and I think that's where, you know, cryptocurrency sort of, you know, started. Um, you have to then recognize and accept that, you know, regulators, you know, kind of have a, a pretty substantial <laughs> say as to what, who, who, you know, what payments can and can't do or, or how they can and can't occur, um, which, you know, which sort of change, which makes it not so easy to just, you know, kind of relegate it to, to, to kind of uh, information flow. But it also obviously has to comply with a bunch of, um, you know, sort of re- regulations and restrictions. So, um so, but, you know, I'm sure this is probably overplayed at this point, but I was, you know, sitting at a, an emerging payments event, uh, I guess, I think that was last week um, with, with Bill Reddy. And, and, you know, I think what we talked about, which I think has been mentioned many times is if you think about the best payment experiences, it's, it, you know, it's really the ones that you don't experience. So it's, you know, if, if you, as a consumer anyway, if you think about it that way, um, you know, there is this sort of recognition that, um most people don't really seek out the experience of making a payment. Um, it's something that occur if it, if, if it occurs, re, you know, in a really successful way, you might never really think about the fact that it happened. I agree. I agree. You know, but there is a counterpoint to that and you can see it empirically in observing many traditional retail transactions. If you, um, I'm a bit of a research nerd. I spent a lot of time researching people uh, just doing transactions behavior, how merchants interact with it, time and motion studies. And I find that, you know, just standing in you know, with permission at a, at a target and watching, you know, people check out on a Saturday afternoon, there is a um, sort of duet, a dance that takes place in these uh, uh, retail transactions. And some people actually find satisfaction in what they're doing. And, and I'm talking on both sides of the transaction. Something is being given, something is being taken away, and there's a conclusion of a sale. And I think in all of the startups I've worked with and and have observed, a lot of times we as technologists, we overshoot the experience and we say, well, let's just make it so you walk out the front door and nothing happens. Are you still there? 
So looks like we had a little, little break in the connection, but I think we're both here. Um, it's such a cliffhanger. I'm actually so curious how he's going to finish his sentence. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can. Hey. Oh, Brian, yeah, there we go. We had a little break, but go go ahead. We don't want to ruin your flow. You said sometimes huh. as technolo- sometimes as technologists we overshoot, and then that was it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So sometimes we overshoot the experience, right? Uh, you know, if you, I don't know if we got the thing about Target, but basically when you research and look at how retail interactions take place, there is actually a bit of enjoyment that people uh, get out of a retail experience. You know, if the line is bad and the, you know, the wait time is too long and you had to walk too far to get your stuff, yeah. But, you know, if you go into a Target or you go into especially a, a membership store like Costco, you actually see people invigorated by the shopping experience, invigorated by the the fact they have to climb up and get their product and bulk it together and put it in their own bags and hand over their uh, their check card or their credit card or their Apple Pay and get that interactive experience. And what I've noticed over the years in watching new wallet developments is that when we're not mindful of the time and motion study research of how people really interact, there is this experience that a lot of people feel is missing. You know, it's like, did I really complete that transaction? Uh, you know, when you start stepping up consumers, have you, have you experienced that with some of the startups that you're viewing and some of the ideas that they're coming up with? It's a great question. I mean, we, we have not invested in a company that, um, was, had a competitive, you know, sort of entry into mobile payments. Um, you know, and I think I would be honest that, you know, most of that is because I think we perceive that, you know, that mobile payments at the, at the very heart of that um, interaction um, at the point of sale was really a, a game to be won by large players. Um, that's, you know, I think that's been our, our perception. And I think sure. that's playing out. But but, I, but but the other piece of it is I, 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 I actually think you're probably right. You know, there's a there's a set of you know, kind of activities and experiences around the the checkout that works really, really well today. Um, you know, the line you know, we could we could we could we could talk about the lines and you know certain categories of retail where people don't like waiting in lines. Um, I think in general people don't like waiting in lines. Um, I agree. It, it, it's it, it's potentially you know, but I but I see your point. I mean, there's sort of an ego express expression um, and, and and a social interaction that occurs at the point of sale. You know, so, you know, people seeing you buy something, you know, that can, can, can be, you know, satisfying, um, at least, you know, from an ego expressiveness um, perspective. And then obviously social interaction with the, the clerk, um, depending upon, you know, kind of the, the environment, I think can also be satisfying. We haven't really focused on, um, you know, kind of trying to disrupt that in any way. I will say we were investors in a company called Boomtown, which supports a whole bunch of you know, merchant technology. Um, and, uh, and so, so, so clearly this, you know, tablet point of sale trend, you know, kind of touches on, sure. on, you know, kind of that, that area. Um, and I think it, it you know, it, in large part, it's, you know, attempting to make the checkout experience better, um, but not trying to completely remove it. The one area, I guess, you know, and this is a question back to you. I mean, what do you think of reserve, um, where, you know, you, I think there's, I mean, certainly that's one, type of a retail retail transaction um, where the payment is completely removed. Um, No card tendered, you know, just, you know, kind of here's the bill that you already paid. Well, you know, it's, it's really 
within the business model. Like an Uber experience is incredible, but I don't think you can Uberize a, a vast majority of retail type transactions as much as we'd like. And and I think it has to do just the way we are social animals. I think, uh, you know, what Micah had experienced with FlowTab, you know, the whole bar experience, you know, that's a theatrical experience. You go out to a bar, even if you're trying to have a drink, whatever, it is a bit of a theatrical experience. And some of it is waiting in that line at the bar, right? It's the getting behind a few people and meeting and, and chance uh, occurrences. I think Mike can speak to that, right? You discovered with FlowTab that some people just wanted to wait, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, Brian, you said it perfectly when you described the experience that consumers have at retail locations. And there's sort of the appeared friction or appeared frustration in the experience, but it's actually part of the enjoyment. Um, I mean, the same thing goes for hospitality, uh, the industry. And uh and I think there is a gradual process away from that friction, right? Like if you if you rewind the clock and you look at, do people really enjoy going to the post office and mailing <laughs> letters? Yeah, they sure do. You know, it takes them 30 minutes. They see everyone in their town. They get to talk to everyone. So if you were sitting back then and you're saying, you know, would email ever take off? People are never going to want to leave, you know, going to the post office. And I think you, you look at it and you see the benefits of, of the experience. Like people enjoy the checkout line or they enjoy the bar or they enjoy whatever they're doing. But at the end of the day, if you make it better, they'll find somewhere else to find that enjoyment, right? They'll, they'll go dancing or they'll go to a coffee shop or they'll do something else that's not absolutely required. I think people just naturally make the best out of experiences, but I wouldn't limit yourself to say that we're going to be stuck in, an arena, in, in, in a world where you're not going to be allowed to check out mobily because people love like – I agree. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I, I yeah. think the astute merchants and the astute um, uh, startups will look at transforming that experience. You know, all right, if there is going to be a line, what are people normally doing in that line? And really good retailers, obviously, if you look at the checkout area of a, of a good retail store, you know exactly what they're thinking. Uh, that's all scientifically derived. Exactly every pegboard item is put there for an exact reason. And they are making, in some cases in pharmacies, sometimes uh, 45 to 50% of their profits within 12 uh, feet of the checkout mm-hmm. station. So yep. the, that whole thought process taken to the startups, I think is a, is a dynamic, uh, you know, possibility. And I think uh, all these convergences is part of my thesis that, you know, you have payments, we, you have the data and all that. We see, look, we see that hundred percent. We, we see that. I mean, so we're investors in a company called Retail Next. It's one of our yeah. largest and most successful portfolio companies. And I mean, it, they analyze, you know, kind of visually and, 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 you know, also using, you know, Wi-Fi and beacons and other types of sensors, um, you know, digitally, you know, kind of what happens inside of a store. And, you know, they can find optimization opportunities that can increase same store sales 10, 15, you know, as much as 30 percent, wow. um, which is huge. But, but the truth is, it's not. It's never about getting rid of the line. It's not. I mean, it's you know they're you know these stores are pretty well optimized. They're not. They're not doubling sales. They're not. I mean, it's these you know that those those numbers I quoted are you know sort of that that's that's kind of the probably the best you can do. And it's usually because structurally you know kind of there's you know the an aisle isn't exactly optimized or or oh, you know, yeah. display isn't in the in the right place or but. Um, but yeah, no, I'd say it's, it's a really exciting area of, of, well, that, of retail. That's an interesting thing. How has, if you can speak to this, how's the message translating to merchants when they come out and talk about 
with this new technology, because it's really relatively new for most merchants. How do they see it? I mean, the merchants, are, are they first sort of like, what are you talking about? Or are they really kind of getting it pretty quickly? Which technology do you mean specifically? Do you mean uh, anal- analytics or? Well, the, yeah, the whole retail next experience. Oh, yeah, sure. Talk about. So, I mean, it's it's um, it's actually relatively straightforward in a lot of cases because um, many retailers have for many years had some method, they've had some in-store analytic technology that most of us don't really think about, which is, you know, at the, at the very least loss prevention related technology. And then, um, you know, typically, you know, the, there's been video infrastructure in a lot of stores, you know, for the purposes of security and, and, and just monitoring. And then, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, there's been traffic counting with, with um, you know, folks like ShopperTrack in a very, you know, kind of um, legacy way for 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 many many years. So the, a lot of this infrastructure has existed over the years. It's just been you know kind of disconnected. It's been um, you know on systems that 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 don't you know kind of um, that don't scale that don't you know kind of talk to each other and are very hard to um, to build applications on top of. So what, what Retail Next did was um, basically created a you know analytics platform. That can capture that can bring data that's captured from a variety of different input sources. They started with video um, and and you know added a bunch of other ones. Um, and so so what they always do when they talk to a retailer is focus on a specific lead application, whether that's traffic counting, loss prevention, um, you know, kind of employee, you know, kind of optimization around shift, you know, kind of management, um, or you know, kind of something much more you know, kind of advanced, like, you know, analyzing the full path of, 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 of shoppers movements through, through stores, how much time they spend it in front of certain displays and the effectiveness of those displays, um, you know, kind of demography and ethnography. Um, you know, there's, there's a variety of different, you know, kind of more advanced applications you can get from those, that infrastructure. But, um, but typically you start with something relatively basic. Um, so, so it's not quite so, you know, kind of, uh, it's not quite so foreign to them, um, but it's still a pretty concert, considered purchase um, for sure. So in looking over the Karen portfolio companies, I, I, I just imagine so many of them being connected. I mean, just while you were speaking, looking at how owner listens and retail uh, next and things like that sort of interconnect with uh, a, a sort of theme. It just seems yeah. like you have this sort of mantra that you're following. And it's quite amazing. I, I don't think any other uh, VC firm is doing anything quite to this level. Uh, d- do you work hard at this uh, theme? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we, yeah, what we've tried to do is be um, thematic and, 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 you know, go segment by segment in, um, you know, kind of across the themes that we, that we care the most about. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I told you that there weren't opportunistic investments that we've made just because, you know, somebody that we've known and really respected for a long time was, was creating a company and, and raising some money. And, you know, we, we felt lucky to be involved. Um, but yeah, for the, I think the majority of our investments really do follow that thematic focus. Um, you know, and it's, and it, and it, and it you know, in a lot of ways, it kind of, if you think about retail uh, on the retail side, it, it kind of goes from the top of the funnel um, down through to kind of the transaction and the, um, you know, kind of loyalty thereafter. Um, you know, on the, on the fintech side, it's also, you know, kind of thematic, but, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's the, you know, the connectivity between the different, you know, companies is, is, you know, sort of, uh, feels different, um, because, you know, where you're investing in different parts of the financial services ecosystem that, um, that don't necessarily have to work with each other, um, you know, from a, 
startup perspective. Um, Dan, uh, I'm curious on your on your side of things. Um, you know, from the, from the founder side, I feel uh, that there's often a an influence in the investor's mind of of what industry or segment uh, sector is hot, and just kind of the the continual focus from investors on on startups in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you must feel the the same effect happening on your side, where you know you'll feel either the Bitcoin or some particular segment of Bitcoin, or uh, whether it's fraud detection or mobile wallets, like they have such volatile um, sort of demand curves where yes. you know investors are really really interested in one particular segment and it, it must be it must be it must bait you a lot to go and and try to make investments in the space while it's hot but at the same time i'm sure you realize that it's a psychological effect and that there may not be larger returns where everyone runs almost like the you know chasing after gold mentality how do yeah. you how do you recognize when that happens and and recognize that you know and not fall into a trap of investing in a company just because everyone thinks it's hot deal yeah it's you know look this is a great question i think a lot about and i'm actually in the the, the process of um of putting together a presentation for a very large strategic uh, focused on this it, you know the the way i think about it is i mean having been a venture you know through two or three different cycles um you know you, you've sort of seen i've seen kind of you know markets fluctuate pretty substantially um so the first piece is just understanding the flows of capital to um to to innovation and you know that's that's dominated obviously by venture capital money and and, and obviously to some extent angel investment um when you look at venture investment and angel investment um what's happened in the last few years is really i mean back in um in, in you know in 2009 when we you know kind of hit the skids the economy hit the, the skids the public markets fell apart you know, pretty dramatically, valuations came way, way down in the public markets, but private markets didn't didn't come down nearly as fast because they lag, you know, in just in the way that that those valuations are marked to market. So, you know, there's this you know kind of way over um, uh, allocation of of, of um, institutional investors' um, portfolios to private investments. So, so basically, this big had turned off, you know, pretty pretty rapidly and and completely for new commitments to to um, to venture. Uh, and, and to private equity, but it, but you know venture probably felt it the worst. And so what happened is you know for the next few years, you know venture was way underfunded relative to you know kind of um, you know where it had been historically. And so, but as the as the public markets came back, there was you know there was a you know very substantial you know recovery in the in the public um, part of the portfolios. And so in the last you know kind of two three four years. Institutional investors are looking at their their allocations and realizing they're way under allocated for 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 venture um, and, and alternative assets that can outperform the market. So so you know the the sort of the pendulum has swung back and we've seen unprecedented flows of capital back into into venture. Um, so fund for you know there's been a ton of fund formation. Um, you, when you mix that in with sort of the institutionalization of the seed you know, kind of investment process um, where we have institutional seed funds, you know, it, what, what's happened is there's been a proliferation of innovation in general. And, you know, and because of cloud architectures, you know, it's just a lot cheaper to start companies now. So, so you know, I guess that, that's a long way of saying, I think the environment has gotten, you know, kind of, you know, there's, there's way more, you know, kind of uh, raw material for, for innovation and resources for innovation than there has been in a long time. And, um, and so that, you know, as the market has, has, you know, kind of improved, you know, company, there's been a lot of, um, money flowing into, you know, what I would, you know, perceive as, you know, high value, you know, 
you know, kind of areas, areas where if you, you know, if there's a disruption, you know, the winner can can create a very, very big business. You know, in cryptocurrency is is a perfect example of this. I think, you know, most people would recognize that, you know, kind of certainly in the in the near term, you know, creating a really, really big business in the cryptocurrency space has long odds. But if it happens, the business you know, if if cryptocurrency disrupts money in a meaningful way, the you know, the outcome is so large that um, you can't afford to ignore it. Um, and, and it, and it's fundamental to the you know the financial services ecosystem. Um, you know, and so so I, I think there's a few categories that look like that, right? You know, alternative lending or platform lending, um, depending on how you think about it. Um, certainly, you know, cryptocurrency and the and, you know and, and then you know payment acceptance to a certain extent. Um, although I would argue that you know payment acceptance is a little bit less d- disruptive, um, you know even though there have been you know disruptor players uh, in that space, retirement planning is seeing this, um, you know with with the the robo advisor you know kind of entrance. Um, so so I think you know those are the categories where you know I, I could argue that they've they've become very very hot, um, although cryptocurrency has probably fallen off a little bit lately. Um, so to your question. You know, we we track all of these hot categories and segments, you know, very closely. Um, And you know, over the years, and we've been looking at these spaces for for a long time. You know, I've I've ended up meeting with many of the companies that are now, you know, the the hottest companies in these spaces. um, You know, just 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 by following the space and and tracking, you know, kind of activity. Um, I think the challenge for you know for for any investor, but specifically the way we think about it is, you know, we started our fund two years ago, um, you know, and you know, a, as a benefactor, but also a victim of the time the timing of that, you know, we have to be very mindful of the valuations at which we invest, and you know, kind of e- even if there's a nice return opportunity, um, if a an investment profile doesn't fit the strategy that we promised to our investors, you know, it's kind of it, you know it, it kind of isn't the right investment for us to make. Um, so, you know, both I'd say cryptocurrency, you know, it has been a, a space that I, I, I continue to have some questions about timing, but, you know, in terms of alternative and, and platform lending, you know, that's a very interesting space that, you know, candidly was pretty well funded even when we were just getting started. Um, and so, you know, the idea of investing at pretty high prices, um, you know, as a small part of a $50 million round, let's say, just you know, kind of didn't fit with the investment strategy that we we've had. Um, so so that, you know, there's a mixture of things that occur, which is you know, sort of this practical you know commitment to a strategy you promise your investors, which makes it a little bit easier. Although you know, certainly I have a lot of FOMO, um, but it makes it a little bit easier to, <laughs> to sit out some of these crazy rounds because. I would maybe I shouldn't say crazy, but certainly some of these really large rounds. Large rounds. Um, yeah. So, so I, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I almost I feel your struggle on that side, and then and then when the market becomes, you know, when you look at it, and and the people ask the inevitable question: Is it, you know, are we in a boom market? And, and what what can you actually do about that? You know, I, I part of it is you, you. I'm sure you get pressure from your investors that you know you want to make great deals, but at the same time, if you feel that the market is overcapitalized or that it's, it's too frothy, then, you know, can you really sit back and not make investments or I guess you make them slower? Um, I I, mean, yeah, I mean, I I kind of feel like we're, we're very lucky in that we, um, we see a a great, you know, kind of volume of deal flow. And and, and I I owe a lot of that to the investors and and the people who have, have lent their, you know, kind of, 
association and brand to, to our platform. Um, so, you know, in that deal flow, we see a lot of, you know, what we would look at as, you know, great companies, great teams, and great values. Um, and many of them are not, you know, the sort of sexy spaces that, um, you know, that, 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 that I've just described. Um, they're in kind of more fundamental innovation areas that are just not as well understood by, you know, kind of the the mainstream investors that that are investing in some of you know, you know, these these companies, um, you know, in, in the hotter in the hotter segments. I view my job, you know, as as pretty clear. I you know, my job is to make money for for the people who gave me capital, um, and it's also to be strategically relevant to the people who gave me capital. I mean, that's a big part of why they invested in what we're doing. Um, you know, as it turns out. Those two things, neither one of them actually necessitates me investing in segments that are, you know, kind of really, really hot. I just have to know the companies yeah. in those segments, and and so and so, you know, in a certain way, you know, the I it doesn't matter if we invest in, in, in companies in those segments or not. I would say the only nagging piece of it is ego, right? I mean, to, right, to be right. a, to be associated with a, a yeah. you know a lending club or a wealth front, um, you know, is you know, there's sort of the ego, you know, side of, of any human who's a VC who, you know, you want to have an association with some of the best companies. Um, Where do you feel that, that biggest missed opportunity? Was there a, was there a a deal that came in front of you that got away? The one that got away. Yeah. Which, which one's that? Oh, so many, so many great companies (laughs) that got away. I, you know, I, 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 you know, I could take you through a, you know, let's see. I mean, you know, Cabbage, you know, is doing great. We, yeah. you know, we we got a look early at Cabbage on deck. We got a look at the Series B at on deck. Wow. And I was these were these were both at Highland, um, you know, at, at personal capital. We, look, we got a look at the Series A, the Series sure. B, Betterment, the Series B and Series C, Sigfig. You know, I mean, like, um, I yeah, we 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 were competing for a round at Square. We, you know, we, I mean, it, there's there there are a how lot. Is, how is Square looked at now in the venture eye? Are they are they a, a guaranteed win? Is is it super high risk to them? I mean, the fact that they pushed their IPO kind of puts them in question mark. Are they are, are people who invest in the Square? Are they happy they invest in the Square? Are they screaming? Are they kind of sitting in the corner questioning it now? <laughs> I you know it's a really good question and a hard one to answer. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of different investors in Square, and I think if you're you know, if you were an early investor in Square, uh, Kosla, even Sequoia, I, I think you're probably feel pretty good still. Um, I, you know, I think there's, I think there's a pretty big disconnect between the public perception of what's going on inside of Square and and kind of what's actually happening. But I'm not sure that that means that if people are skeptical externally, that things are going great internally. Um, you know, I, I've got the you know kind of the, the pleasure of being friend, pretty friendly with a bunch of folks um, who work there or who who were involved early on. And you know, my sense is that when th- as bad as people think it might be going, it's not as bad as that uh, when when that's the case. And when you know, as good as you know, people might think it is. You know, when when people are excited, it's probably there's a lot more challenges than people know about. Sure. So, um, you know, and, and you know, in generally, I think you know the the Square Cash has been a you know a pretty exciting you know kind of growth um, you know kind of product for them in terms of usage, not necessarily in terms of economics, I would imagine. But um, yeah. and then the you know kind of uh, Square Capital, I think, has has done quite well. Um, you know. It, it, in its, you know, kind of short lifespan. Um, 
but but in terms of you know the core business, it's hard to argue that they are anything you know beyond today still being a you know predominantly a next generation ISO and 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 maybe payment processor. Um, but um, you know they're certainly trying to b- become a, a software company um, any way they can. And now, now, Dan, speaking of Square as as this sort of software, you know, um, API to the merchant. It seems like essentially some of the companies that you've uh, invested in are sort of trying to approach that in an individual sense, and I see Square doing it as a in a collective sense. The um, I think the confusion that comes to a lot of the central Square merchants is some of the things become maybe so tangential to what they're really about that it almost becomes a conflicting message. You know, there. Uh, as, as I'm sure you know, and in uh, and, and doing a lot of uh, uh, your early um, uh, investments in the, some of the retail, you wind up finding that merchants may want a lot of big data, but unless that big data is generated in a very, very concise way, uh, charts and graphs are not good enough. Telling me I sold 17 cupcakes on rainy days more than other days. Most <laughs> merchants already instinctively know that, and it becomes almost like a a toy feature and it becomes a disincentive. At least I see that from the ground level. Yeah. Um, do you think that as companies in this space get maybe one might argue too large? <laughs> I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, does that become almost um, an impediment to really um, pole vaulting into the highly successful realm? Uh, you know, it's a, again, a very, interesting thought line, you know, line of thought it's, and you know, we, we, we all just saw Slack raise some more money because they yeah. can, um, it, you know, <laughs> it's, the, the commentary on that is quite interesting. I think to some extent, it, it's not that squares only raise money because they can, but I think they've raised more money and, and grown the team and ambitions and raised money at higher valuations because they could. And, yeah. um, and, and so, you know, I think any definition by any traditional definition of an, of an ISO or merchant acquirer, if you had looked at Square's growth in the, the core of their business, you'd be impressed. Um, you know, it's only when you you know kind of set them on the backdrop of of you know the valuations that they've at which they've raised, where you start to question whether or not they're you know a long term sustainable business. See, that's um, a critical point, right? Because with a with a newly IPO'd PayPal in the marketplace, right? Right. Uh, the, it, and and Apple Pay. I mean, you, one cannot stress how uh, I think meteoric uh, the change was uh, uh, for the entire payment industry when Apple dropped in. I mean, I, we saw it coming. Uh, my team here on around the coin, we talked about it for almost a year beforehand. But when it dropped in, it left people stymied and, and bewildered, <laughs> you know, and the business model at Square had to change immediately. They immediately had to drop the wallet because it made no sense uh, in an Apple Pay world. Uh, and now you have PayPal coming in who one could argue has a tremendous advantage because of the cash on hand that they have, because they already have, in a sense, a mobile wallet. They have the uh, uh, the, the cash of people in PayPal accounts, etc. Do you see that that comp- makes it much more complex? Do you see it as uh, an opportunity for smaller companies and maybe a lodestone around a larger company because of that uh, change? 
you, uh, you mean the the success of, of, of PayPal of, IPO, PayPal. Yeah. Uh, uh, Apple Pay coming into the market? Yeah. I mean, that really twisted everything around. I, yeah, I th- look, it, it definitely is polarizing, right? So everybody immediately had to figure out how either Apple Pay, I, and let's just focus on Apple Pay for a second. I think everybody had to figure out how Apple Pay either was beneficial to them um, or recognize that they were just they they were they were not going to be able to to, to to exist in a in a world where that was dominant and, and changed their strategy. Um, I you know I, I I think most players you know kind of that had a mobile payment related um, application. Um, you know if I think of, about folks like Cover, you know it, it, they yeah. you know basically realized that they had to integrate Apple Pay and it had to be you know they had to make that part of a wonderful experience and you know and and hope that that was enough to. To, to actually position them for success, um, I, but I, but I think I think others. If you, you know, you look at um, you know, I, I, I look at Padient and um, and even Loop, and you yeah. know, to some extent, I mean, the, the, those were good outcomes for for both of those companies. Candidly, in some cases, maybe even better than I would have expected. But but um, but I think both of both of those companies probably realized that they weren't going to build a billion dollar business in the face of what you know uh, uh, you know kind of Apple Pay. Um, was going to do to the market or could do to the market and much better to take, uh, you know, a nice exit, you know, now rather than try to keep, you know, kind of trying on your own. Did you notice, did you notice a change in your portfolio of companies when it became obvious that Apple was going to be in NFC payments and in-app payments, fingerprint technology, tokenization, uh, you know, the whole infrastructure? Not as much as you might think, just because I mean, if you look at our portfolio, the the the, the payments companies we've invested in, Bill.com, which is you know a B two B payments network, sure. um, and and SaaS provider, and, and you know Bitnet, which is really focused on digital you know payment acceptance, and then and then you know it, it, the one that probably it's most most relevant for is Marketa, um, you know, and, and I'd say you know they're they're relatively agnostic really as an issuing processor, so so it's, it doesn't hurt them in any way, it doesn't really force them to change much. There is a, there is actually some interesting potential upside for them, um, in their strategy, but, but it's, it's not, but I think it didn't, it didn't really change a lot of the, the sort of core payments folks. And then from a, you know, experiential, you know, kind of retail technology perspective, I think only, only positive because, you know, I look at, you know, it, we talked a little bit about beacons earlier, I, you know, look at, sure. you know, the importance and relevance of beacons. If, it, you know, if, if the, you know, if the Apple device, mobile device is, is, a, is a, you know, sort of a, a central part of your pay, your, your um, retail transaction, um, then I think that only benefits, you know, kind of, Beacon technology, um, because that's you know I, I view that as a very likely complement, um, and Absolutely. you know, and, and just in general the digital exp- the digital you know sort of content percentage of the experience of the retail experience I think increases. So I, I think it's been I think it's a positive for all of our the companies we've invested in, but probably not quite so. Um, Across the board, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah. it's probably just not quite so you know kind of impactful. You know of, of the fact. Yeah. I would call uh, I would call uh, iBeacon plus NFC uh, pretty much Apple Pay 3.0 and beyond. Right. Um, there's there's no doubt that these two um, radio technologies are designed to merge. I think the head fake that Apple did by trying to tell the world they were going to bypass NFC and somehow triangulate you uh, via beacon <laughs> or right. uh, Wi-Fi, the the science wasn't behind that. You couldn't get that close no. uh, to knowing where somebody was, even through great triangulation. But it's the, exactly what it was—a head fake. 
It was a head fake, no doubt. Uh, we read through that. But, you know, the thing about Beacons is I think it really brings the promise of what the online world brought to commerce into the retail space. But beyond what I think the usual suspects are, uh, I think, uh, you know, some of your portfolio companies are certainly seeing that. Um, are you experiencing a lot of entrepreneurs that are getting that sense now that Apple pays out there that the, the next big footstep is going to be within Beacons? Um, I think, I think beacons are where NFC was a year and a half, a year, year and a half ago. Um, wow. now that I'll explain what I mean by that, but I think that, you know, I'll caveat it to say that, you know, the, you know, the concept of beacon, you know, certainly in, in, in the current sense, um, is much newer than NFC. NFC is a 10, 15 year old, you know, kind of technology conceptually, and um, and but but in terms of where people's mindset were on NFC, you know, a year and a half ago, I think everybody thought NFC was dead, um, and you know, and I heard it so many different times. And candidly, I kind of believed it, um, you know, because you looked at the players who were who were you know kind of supporting NFC in an NFC based approach, and you just couldn't see how they were going to get any any traction at all. Um, it, it had been tried so many times and, and failed every single time. It made so, me a made me a rebel uh, back in. Uh, I've been tracking NFC and Apple uh, since uh, 2011, and advising companies that NFC was definitely going to be part of the roadmap. And fortunately, for a number of very large retailers, listening to that actually made them, you know, Apple uh, initial partners. But it was funny how politicized NFC became because it became polarized to a involvement with carrier, right? Because nobody wanted the carrier to be the uh, uh, the mainstay of payments mobile and the whole idea of using the secure element and and paying the, the piper of uh, uh, Verizon and AT&T was lack of appealing. But a lot of my tech colleagues and the startup founders and VCs were like, I don't want to get involved in NFC because that's a political support for carriers. And I said, it's a radio technology like USB. Apple will take USB or NFC and make it in their own image. And it's the only way they could do this at retail. There, there's no other way to do it. Uh, yeah. It, you're, I mean, I, I, a hundred percent agree with you. I, I think the carriers and, and you know, the unfortunate venture formerly known as soft card, um, <laughs> I think was a was a emblematic example of of what everybody thinks as of of as you know kind of the the what was wrong of, with the, what was wrong with NFC what was wrong with NFC but also the failed the failed trajectory of NFC yeah. and I, you know and I and then I think about Google Wallet and, and host card emulation you know certainly an interesting you know kind of approach um, you know it's in my view what happened even you know even though it sounds as though you saw this you know this this playing out a long time ago. I mean, really the networks bringing tokenization to life, um, you know, and, and, and candidly, I, I don't know if from my perspective as an observer, I think, you know, Apple had this waiting in the wings oh, yeah. and, and, and it was unclear when and if they would, they would move forward on it. And then, you know, they saw a window um, and, and, and the target breach was a huge part of that. 
Well, you know, it, it was an impetus, but they really were, if you look at my research, I, I have obviously some friends inside of Apple, but my research was primarily uh, by public patents. And uh, after about 35 patents directly related to retail NFC, you, a company even of Apple size doesn't take year after year that much great talent, uh, 300, uh, no, 375 different employees working on NFC on patents unless they have a concerted plan at, 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 uh, at play. And I know Steve, uh, before he you know, left the company, was very, very adamant that payments was one of their major tentpoles. And obviously that came to fruition. Uh, he felt NFC was very strong. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of the base team that built around NFC felt that way also. You know, the, the basic thing that I think was the impetus was really not so much the breaches that was starting it. It was the motivation of uh, EMV, which uh, made retailers reconsider uh, their credit card terminals and their POS terminals and whether or not they were going to have a chip in uh, or yeah, but, obviously a radio in there. But, but look, I mean, not that I disagree. I, 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 sure. I actually agree, but it, it's, um, but, but you, you also have to recall where we were with EMV. Um, the plan it was in the terrible. US. Yeah. It, no, but most people, it, 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 it was the, the progression of EMV deployment, um, you know, kind of mandate was, was, was slowing, not accelerating before target. So you what know, happened was when target, when target, when target hit, it actually created a deploy, you know, a, a, a EMV mandate acceleration, um, that, that created a very fertile environment for It became, it became a political thing. There was Congress and Senate. Thing. Yeah. And you so- know, yeah. The thing about EMV, though, and and the thing to, to on the retailer side, and this is where you know I've done so much research, is I call it the EMV user interface fail, right? The UX uh, fail. Uh, the problem in the United States is after October, um, standing in line behind people who are trying to use EMV cards is going to be a bit of a of a, I call it a circus uh, act uh, type of scenario because you have people of all different um, uh, stages of life. You have senior citizens, you have younger people, and you have devices that have slots that may not be very apparent how they work. The biggest problem with EMV in the United States is there's no demarcation when that card has to be removed. You and I are familiar with the swipe. That is a one uh, one-step process, the card swipes through the terminal, you put it back where it belongs. EMV in the United States is not like that. You have to insert the card and then you have to wait for a moment, whatever that moment is. It could be 30 seconds, it could be 10 seconds to disengage that card from the reader the, or the dip, if you will. And the problem with that is if the card's removed too quickly, if it's just swiped, uh, and it, it, will not, it will not do the transaction. Whereas in Europe and Canada, it's EMV with PIN you know when to, re to remove that card because you sure. entered your PIN number. In the United yeah. States, this fail is actually going to motivate more NFC usage because people are going to get frustrated and say, when did I remove my, when the heck do I remove my card? And yeah. even in Canada, uh, what is it? 9% of cards are left behind in Canada, uh, even to this day. People <laughs> really? That's the insanely high. <laughs> it, is, it is incredibly high. And, and these are people who are putting in PIN numbers. So we're, we have interesting times ahead. Now, we're going a little long, but I really want to ask, because I look at your company list, how do you feel about the delivery and the on-demand uh, economy that's developing? And how does that fit into the, to your business plan and your constellation of companies in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's it's it's diff what's difficult to do is parse out the sort of secular shifts 
from the, you know, kind of excitement and perhaps overexcitement of, of, you know, <laughs> kind of, uh, of our industry. And, and again, I think what happened, there's, there's a tendency to, you know, to, to, to sort of cha- get a, you know, get this irrational exuberance around, you know, themes and, you know, this sort of fear of missing out that drives people to make investments at increasingly higher prices and so, shorter. So Dan, you're not going to invest in another food delivery company, right? I hope not. Well, I don't think we're, I don't think we're, I don't think we're likely <laughs> to. So, so right. I think what, what we decide, and, and, you know, you asked earlier what some of my biggest misses were. I mean, yeah. I, 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 whether or not we could have actually made the investment, I did speak with Uber at the seed round and, and, you know, oh boy. gosh, do I wish we had invested in that. But the, um, but you know, I think you know there there are marketplace you know kind of there are marketplace businesses that are enabling you know kind of um, independent um, workers to 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 um, find and 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 uh, and complete deliveries um, for other folks, and and I think that's kind of an interesting space. I mean, it's sort of what um, Uber did in in the transportation industry, or has done in the transportation industry, and so I, I think those are interesting fundamental opportunities. But but you know the you know, sort of the being a logistics company is not trivial, and and so you know any company that looks more like a logistic a logistics business, you know, we're probably not likely to invest in because at the end of the day, what you're constrained by, and you know, I think Square sees this from the a payment processing perspective, is you're constrained by the exit multiples of the businesses that you compete with, um, and 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 potentially disrupt. Right at the early scale, at the early sizes uh, or early scale, and you know, an exit can be uh, you know kind of at a disproportionate revenue multiple. Um, but as you get larger, you're really constrained by the rash, you know, the, the sort of rational uh, multiples um, that your your large competitors or existing players get. Um, and you have to ask yourself, are you a technology business or are you yeah. something else? So, so I, you know, I, I think there are some interesting businesses being built um, in the, you know, kind of the delivery space, but I, I'm just not sure that they're technology businesses. And, you know, we're in the business of investing in technology companies. So Uber today, if Uber showed up today with your current, and, and, and obviously not with the history of knowing how well they're doing, with your current, you know, uh, way of seeing things, would you see them as a, because I see them primarily as not a, 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 a transportation company, but a logistics uh, management company. And, and they're incredible about, uh, uh, you know, managing all sorts of assets and putting them together at the right time. Um, do you see that as, do you see it that way? And do you see that as core as part of payments oh, or no, do you see it more mechanically uh, if a, an Uber showed up? It's no, it's it's a hundred. It's a hundred percent. I agree with you that it's a it's a. It's, first of all, it's a technology business. It's a marketplace. Sure. It's a technology platform that encompasses payments and logistics, and it is a marketplace that's uh, attached to it. The marketplace, you know, is what gives I think the business a marketplace revenue multiple, um, sure. you know, or better. Um, but but you know what what enables that is you know kind of a very logistically challenging you know kind of logistics business that requires you know kind of. You know, control of operational complexity, um, and you know, obviously, from a payments perspective, you know, that's an integrated you know component of what they do. Um, so, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, well, you know, I don't. Because I, I, I as delivery company, if it, yeah, or, see, or transportation company. Yeah, I, I see this trend. And I, you know, and I think Square is trying to ride that out. And I, uh, my personal opinion, I think it's not such a good idea with food delivery. But uh, I, I just know way too much about that market on a local level that your your ability to dominate that on a national scale is a fantasy, absolute fantasy. It's not going to be like uh, like Uber. It's a completely different model. But 
I see a lot of ideas like this, all the way to what Mike's doing uh, with Home Hero, all the way down to uh, some some of these companies that are uh, doing packaging and things at that level. They are in in some very es- essential stages, really payment companies extending into this marketplace. But uh, I, I I think it's right now you're not quite seeing it. I think as we look back five six years from now, we'll say, wow, these were really just. Uh, in manifestations of different forms of payment companies because yeah, they really it, are riding on that. Yeah, it's it, look. I, I it, in a way I agree with you, but you know that would be like calling eBay a payments company, and and I think we, we have to recognize that. Yeah, really, they, right. It's it, you know that that particular case, and and, and Alibaba and the same. Like, well, look what sort of, happened to eBay when PayPal leaves. Right, it's going to be a different world. Right. It's not. So 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 is is payments core to a marketplace business? Absolutely. And is fraud prevention and is all that sure. stuff core to? Absolutely. However, you know, if I look at companies like WePay and and you know to you know to, to a certain extent, you know, kind of others like like um, Stripe and, and, and and you know, kind of in uh, and, and who who are doing stuff in kind of marketplace payments. Sure. I mean, there's a you can pull the sort of payments aspect out and provide it to marketplace businesses so that it doesn't have to be core. Um, but I but 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 back to your point. I, I mean, you know what, what Mike's doing, and, and and you know, obviously what Uber's doing, and there's there's a bunch of labor marketplaces that I think that's the secular trend stuff. That's what's really compelling. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why is that happening? And I think what happened, what's ha- what's happening here is, you know, people lost trust in 2009. They lost they, they lost trust in the American corporation and the you know sort of the the more traditional legacy employment promise that they had. From you know, from working hard and, and having you know, kind of tenure in in a, in, a, in a large or you know, kind of corporate environment, and so you know, when 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 that trust bond went away, um, you know, people began to second guess you know what it meant to be employed and what it meant to be unemployed, and you know, part of this is is the millennial generation for sure, but a big part of it is just people's willingness to take their or, or not even willingness but desire to take their employment wow. levels into their own hand. I so, love the way you put that together. Mike, are you seeing that? Because, I mean, you're right at the forefront of it. You're seeing a lot of people recapturing the American dream uh, sort of by taking the reins. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think it almost rides in the uh, emotional mentality of people who, because, you know, if you're in your, say, 25 to 35 range right now, your parents grew up in the the heyday of the American economy. So you're used to an environment where, you know, your dad probably works like 35, 40 hours a week and he makes a great income. You're in the upper middle class and you sort of have a, a ratio of work input to output in the world. And and frankly, that generation, like the baby boomer generation, they they benefited from those who went to war and those who worked really hard and those who came out of the Great Depression era. So those that era um, kind of led to the benefactor of the baby boom generation, which led to the generation now who I think really believes that you, you know it's better to just chase your dream and not worry about income or a steady job and kind of the typical jobs that were once appreciated are now you know being a doctor, being a lawyer. Those are kind of like viewed secondarily, and it's more about how do we fulfill and make enough money to chase our dreams and that make enough money, work flexible. That is the on-demand economy. The on-demand economy, in my mind, is just to to satisfy people chasing after someone else. Like anytime you get in a car, or anytime you talk to any one of our caregivers, or a Lyft driver, or Postmates, anyone, they're they're all doing something else. Um, yeah. So I think it's a fantastic yeah. way well, to and, subsidize it. And almost uniformly, I've when I've talked to you know kind of Uber drivers across the board, they're the ones I'd probably get exposed to the most. 
I ask them a very simple question, which is, you know, it, like, I, I ask them, you know, what they were doing before and, you know, are they, are they making more now or were, or, or, or were they making more before? And, 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 you know, almost a hundred percent of them were making more money they, before than they, than they are now, but yeah. they enjoy their life a lot more now because they, they are able to control when they're working. And so to a certain extent, you, know, you have to ask yourself, is the on-demand the consumer, you know, kind of getting the ride or is the on-demand the provider, you know, kind of who's getting employment on demand. And and that's kind right. of the, the interesting, <laughs> right. you know, kind of piece of it to me. Yeah. Um, so, hey, hey, Dan, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here, is there anything that, um, you know, be helpful to kind of send a general message to other companies or people or founders or anyone that you would uh, want to get in touch with? And if, if so, how would someone get in touch with you? Yeah. So, and, and then I'm going to have to hop off yep. because <laughs> right after this. Um, I, uh, so, so look, we're, I mean, we're, we're excited about working with entrepreneurs who, um, who think our network and, and experience can be, you know, helpful to them. So we're looking for companies that typically have launched, uh, have products and have launched and have some early results, um, because that makes it easier to kind of introduce them to, to other companies that should want to work with them. Um, but you know, our, I'd say, you know, we're, we're talking to dozens of companies, you know, kind of every week. Um, so we, we want to see any interesting innovation, um, that's, that's in our spaces. Um, and you know, it, unfortunately we can't do all of, we can't invest in every company, but, uh, but you know, we do our best to be responsive where we can. Um, you know, I, the, in terms of shout outs, I mean, I, I, I love every one of my portfolio <laughs> to talk about them all, but, uh, but, but no, we're, um, you know, I'd say anybody who wants to get in touch with me, um, Dan at commercevc.com. Um, recognize that you know there's you know we're pretty lean ourselves as a startup uh, firm. So if I don't respond immediately, um, you know it's 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 not about <laughs> not being interested. It's more probably likely that there's just you know an overabundance of email and just sure. sorting through it. But sure. but you know I invite anybody who uh, who thinks there might be an opportunity to match for us to, to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dan. We really, really enjoyed cool. having you on the show. Really good, really insightful, and uh, and best of luck. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care. You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.